uh, Youth Horizons is an organization, thanks guys, Youth Horizons is an organization here in town that serves at-risk youth in our community. They do it primarily through two strategies, two, two means. They have a mentoring piece of their ministry and a residential program. So some of you even in this room I know uh, mentor uh, an at-risk uh, boy or girl and then you might be familiar with the residential program if you do that. And that's where some youth who have been in uh, the state's custody, um, social services and whatnot, uh, they have a, an option for them to go and live at this home and experience uh, healing and really get loved and invested in. And it's a great ministry, but as I've been around it, um, I've seen many of those boys, whether it be through mentoring or through the residential program, uh, they, re they refuse what they're offered. Uh, they're unhealthy and they don't know it. Um, they need love and they refuse to be loved. And maybe it's just a threat to their status quo. They've never really received love like that. Maybe uh, they think that this is a sham that will lead to deeper hurt. I've been hurt and I'm afraid to be hurt again. And maybe some of them, they might not believe that they deserve to be loved, that they are really loved by God and by people. And so I don't know what, it, what goes on in their mind, but I've seen it repeatedly both in my own mentoring match and in the lives of the other boys. Uh, they're dearly loved, but they just don't know it. And it takes time. It takes waves and waves and waves of love breaking in on the shore of their life before they finally begin to understand, oh, this guy might like me, <laughs> um, let alone love me and really care deeply about me. Um, so they end up refusing to receive what they need the most. And the thing that I've learned the most through Youth Horizons, my uh, just affiliation with it, as we came from River Community Church and they're deeply involved, deeply invested in that ministry, is uh, I'm really not all that different than the boys in that program. Specifically when it comes to my relationship with God, I really am not all that different. I need his love. We need his love so desperately. And yet, for one reason or another, it takes waves and waves and waves of love breaking in on the shore of my life to realize just an ounce, just a, a little fraction of how great his love for me and for us really is. So we're in week three of our Experiencing God series. And like I've said before, this is your first week. Uh, you're not hopelessly lost. You can join in on this series at any time, whether it's through the Sunday morning sermons or joining a small group and hearing how God is at work in the lives of the other members. Uh, if you want to get a book, the, the link is still up on our website. But you don't have to get a book and go through the workbook to experience God. We're doing this to ground ourselves as a church in some of the basic principles of what it means to walk with God. And this week, Blackaby focuses on God's initiating love for us. Joshua mentioned it as we began worshiping. And if you don't get anything else out of this whole service today, here's what I want you to hear and walk away with and meditate on. Here's what I want you to remember again and again, like a wave crashing in on the shore. It'll just keep coming at you for as long as you're alive. If you're a Christian, I want you to know that God loves you in Christ. And it might sound really simple, might sound like something you've heard for your whole life, 
And I hope that you have heard it for your whole life, and I hope that you hear it for the rest of your life, because this is what we need. And this is what the passage clearly teaches us today, is that as Christians, because it's addressed to Christians, God loves you in Christ, and that love is amazing. So I want us to be amazed by God's love for us in Christ today. And if you're thinking, well, what if I'm not a Christian, or what if I'm not sure about my status before God, we'll, we'll get to that. We'll get to that question later on. But first, I want us to focus on what this text says. And this text that we're in is Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 6. And I want us to look at how amazing God's love for us in Christ is. But we can't see this love apart from God's help. So let's pray real quickly. And, and not this isn't a perfunctory prayer. This is a prayer of our need for God. So, Father, would you help us to see how deep and great your love is for us and, and what it means that you love us in Christ. Help us now. Amen. Ephesians 1, verses 3 through 6 read, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Just as he, God, chose us in him, Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to be adopted, or he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. So this passage begins with a description of God as blessed. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that word bless or blessed can carry a lot of different meanings. Uh, you can hear people say it as happy or favored or recipient of a good thing. But if someone uh, later today pulled up to you in the car or when you were at Quick Trip and asked you for $20 and then you gave him $20 and he, said, and he walks away saying, oh, God bless you. What he probably means is, I hope God does something good for you because you've done something good for me. Or he might just be saying thanks in a more spiritual way. But the Jewish understanding of the word bless is an expression of God's kindness to us. That's what it means to be blessed is that God has been kind to us. And then when we say, bless God, like bless the Lord, O my soul, it's a way of saying, thank you, God. Thank you for your kindness. So when Paul writes, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, it's, blessed, it's thanks to God for his kindness to us. And this is a thanks. This is a blessing that goes from verse 3 to verse 14. It's the longest sentence in the New Testament, and it's, it's, it's an indication of exactly how amazing God's love for us is. He just goes on and on and on about how amazing God's love for us is. And so today we're just going to look at four expressions. I'd encourage you, if, if you want to include this as part of your quiet time now or at a future point, just slowly go through all the phrases that Paul uses to describe God's love for us in Ephesians 1, uh, verses 3 through 14. But today we just have time to look at four. So here are four expressions of God's amazing love for us in Christ. 
the first one that Paul says is in verse 3, that the blessed God has blessed us in Christ. So he's given us good things. He's been kind to us in Jesus. And we're going to see exactly how he's been kind to us after we read verse 3. So let's refresh ourselves on what verse 3 says. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. So it's not a kindness uh, expressed through receiving material goods like 20 bucks, but it's spiritual goodness. It's spiritual kindness that we're receiving. And it's not here that we receive it necessarily, but it's in the heavenlies. But we have received it now. So it's this funny mix of like, well, right now we're here on earth, but we've received it in the heavenly places. And so it's, if you think about that verse very long, you'll be asking the question, what is that spiritual blessing? I understand that God's been kind to us in Christ, but how? What is the blessing that we have in Christ? How is he loving us by giving us blessing? And fortunately, Paul answers that question because this word in the Greek, it's actually heavenlies. It's translated heavenly realms or heavenly places. And it's used only five times in the New Testament. They're all in the book of Ephesians. So Ephesians chapter 1, where we just read verse 3, verse 19 through 21, uh, chapter 2, chapter 3, and chapter 6. I'm going to read those. I encourage you if you want to flip through your Bibles and follow along. But this is, we're going to find what it means to be blessed with every spiritual blessing. So he promises that, us that in verse 3. But then in verse 19, he describes God's great power that's at work in us who believe. And it is for us who believe. And then it goes on to say that power of God is the, the same as his mighty strength that he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated Christ at God's right hand. And then here's our key phrase, in the heavenly realms, in the heavenlies. He says, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the age to come. So to summarize that, that verse, that passage, Christ is raised from the dead and he's seated in power in the heavenlies. He's seated above every power. He's the power above every power. He's in control and he has power. That's what we get from that. And then this theme is going to be developed in the following verses. Chapter 2, verses 6 and 7 says, God raised us up with Christ. So Christ is seated in power and we are seated with him. And here's our key phrase, in the heavenlies, in the heavenly realms, in Christ Jesus. But it also tells us why. Why are we seated with Christ in the heavenlies? In order that he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. So we've been raised up from spiritual death and now we're seated with Christ in power to show his kindness and his grace. So that's the purpose of this blessing is to show off the goodness of Jesus to us. And then chapter 3 tells us who we're showing off to or who God is showing off to in our lives and what he's doing in us, the church. And it, and it reads this in verse 10. God's intent was that now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities. Here it is again, in the heavenly realms, according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus, our Lord. 
So manifold means multifaceted. Think of a diamond. If you hold a diamond under the light, you see all the different aspects of its beauty, of its glory. And that's what God is doing through us, through the church. He's declaring, he's showing the manifold wisdom of God to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. And so, quick review. God is Christ has been seated by God in power in the heavenly places. Above all other powers, he's been given power. And we're seated with him to show his incredible kindness, and we're meant to show God's kindness and wisdom to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenlies. And so if only we could know who those authorities are, right? Well, I'm glad you asked, because God tells us that next. Chapter 6 verses 10 through 12. This is a familiar passage. It talks about the putting on the armor of God. And Paul writes, finally be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. You see a theme developing here of God's power in us. He says, put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil, where? In the heavenlies, in the heavenly realms. So, Paul gives us a whole picture. He doesn't just say, you've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ in the heavenly realms, and then leave it vague. No, he fills out this picture of exactly what blessing we've received in Christ. How does God love us in Christ? By giving us every blessing in the heavenly realms, every spiritual blessing. Well, what are those blessings? It means that your greatest opposition is spiritual, but you have everything that it takes to overcome that greatest opposition because Christ has power and you've been raised and seated with Christ. So Christ is ultimately victorious over all of our enemies and we can experience victory in him. That's part of the way that God loves us. Victory is not an easy life. Don't hear me say that, but victory is showing off the kindness and the wisdom of God. He's showing off to the opposition, to the enemy, his wisdom, his kindness, and his grace. And he's doing that through raising us up with Christ and displaying the power of Christ through our weakness. So that's the first expression of God's love for us in Christ, is that he has blessed us, and that blessing leads to a victorious life and points to the ultimate victory that God will have over the forces of evil. And the second way that God's love for us is expressed is that he has chosen us in Christ. Look at verse 4. Just as he, God, chose us in him, Christ, there's a lot of pronouns and it's easy to get them mixed up, but That's why I'm filling it in. Just as God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. So everybody loves to be chosen for a sports team, for a group of friends, for a music audition. We all want to feel wanted because choosing is a way of assigning value. When I chose my wife, I said yes to her and no to every other woman ever. And we all want to feel wanted. There's nothing better than being chosen and being assigned the value 
of being chosen. And God has chosen us before the creation of the world. What that means is that he didn't choose you because of anything that you've done or anything that you will do, didn't choose you based on your potential. I love following the NBA and the NBA draft, and they make their choices often based on potential, both performance and potential. But God didn't base his choosing of you off of your performance or off of your potential. He chose you before the creation of the world. He chose you before you were. And he chose you for his purpose, not so that we could fill in our purpose for our life and ask God to bless it, ask God to make it good. Blackaby talks about that in the study. God is not our servant. We are his servants. And he chose us for his purpose, which is given us here in this, in this verse, to be holy and blameless in his sight. So not only were you chosen, but you were made blameless in his sight. And just like we all want to be wanted, all of us are insecure when it comes to our want to be wanted. And I felt this this week. I walked into a room that was filled with other pastors, and I knew some of them, but I still felt like, oh, are they going to choose me or not? Am I going to fit in here or not? I don't know if I belong here or not. But when that happened, the Spirit reminded me, God loves me. He's chosen me. And that's what matters the most. That's what it means to be chosen by God, is it reshapes the, the way that we pick everything else. It reshapes the way that if people choose us or not, it reshapes the way that we interpret those events. Yes, they can still hurt. I'm not saying it's easy. But this is what matters most, is that God loves you. God has chosen you in Christ. And that, that reminder changed my approach from being insecure to secure. And love is fundamentally a choice. It's not a feeling. And that's what this passage shows, is that God has chosen us. And you'll see that the end of verse 4 and the beginning of verse 5, I don't, I don't know, and even as you look at it uh, in a more literal translation, where the in love fits. Did he choose us in love? Did he predestine us in love? How about both? That's the theme of this passage is that God chose us in love. God blessed us in love. God predestined us in love. God gave us grace in love. And so we have to understand what love is. And God says that love is a choice. It was his choice to love us. And we need to remember that we're chosen and loved. We need to remember, we need that wave to keep crashing over our, the shores of our lives. When things go badly, when things go poorly, what's bigger than all of that is that God has loved us in Christ. He's chosen us in Christ. The third expression of God's love for us is that he predestined us to be adopted through Jesus Christ. And we see that in verse 5 when it says, God predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself. And he did this according to the kind intention of his will. So predestined simply means that he decided beforehand what would happen and he made it happen. So you can ask a lot of questions about this and people throughout church history have, well, how do we have choice and how did God make that choice for us? And you can wonder and ask all those questions and that's okay, I've, I've done that a lot, but let's get the answers that we can first. Like, 
one question that we can get an answer to is what were we predestined for? And that was adoption, a new family, a new life. And it's a beautiful thing, but like with the Youth Horizons boys, and they weren't, well, some of them in particular cases get adopted, but it's not an adoption agency. Um, but they're an illustration of how newness, new family, new life, it's a beautiful thing, but it's also a difficult thing to adjust to. And we need to adjust and continue to adjust to the fact that our identity is not in who we are, it's in what Christ has done for us. We've been adopted. We used to be this way, but now we're family members of God. And he did this, why? According to the kind intention of his will. So the whole Blackaby study has a, sub, a subtitle of knowing and discovering God's will for your life. But this is, this is his will. Some, there are part, parts in scripture that just clearly tell us what God's will is. It is his kind, intentional, and predetermined inclusion of you into his family. So you can ask lots of questions about what it means to be, uh, what predestination means and how it works. But the more helpful response for me is, God, why me? And then let it lead you to worship of God. Because that's exactly what Paul is doing. He is worshiping God as he remembers what God has done for him in Christ. How, how God has loved him in Christ. And so the fourth expression that we see of God's love here is that God has given us grace in Christ. Verse 5 says that he predestined us to be adopted according to the kind intention of his will. And then he did this in verse 6, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely graced on us in the beloved. Might be translated freely given, freely bestowed, but the word is actually graced. So he graced us with grace in the beloved. And so it's a glorious, it's an awesome grace. God should be praised for it. But this grace comes to us in who? Again, it's in Christ. And this time he calls Christ the beloved. And uh, this isn't something that's, uh, that's taught normally, but it's something that is clear in the Bible's teaching is that God loves God more than he loves anyone else. Meaning God's love for Christ surpasses any and all other loves that he has. And we see this in John 17 when Jesus said he was praying to the Father before his crucifixion, Father, I want those you have given, you have given me to be with me where I am, to see my glory the glory that you've given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. I've made you known to them and I will continue to make you known in order that the love that you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. Jesus didn't die so that God could love us for who we are. Jesus died so that God could love us for who Jesus is. God doesn't love you with the love that he has for you. God loves you, Christian, with the love that he has for himself. It's a greater love. It's a higher love, and there's no love greater than that one. Now, God's love for those outside of Christ is different because if God started loving everyone with his highest love, he would be failing to love himself first. 
and he'd be breaking the first commandment of the Ten Commandments that says, have no other gods before me. He is consistent. He is a God of integrity. And so when he loves you, he loves you, Christian, in Christ. When he sees you, he sees Christ because of what Christ has done for you. And now this is probably the best time to pick up our earlier question. Uh, Since our passage describes the love that God has for his people who are in Christ, what about the others? Does he love them? And I think the Bible's teaching is clear. Yes, God loves all. John 3.16, we all know it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes would not perish but have eternal life. And he loves all by offering, offering eternal life. And that's a legitimate offer. But he also clarifies that offer by saying you must believe, which means total surrender of how you've been living and trusting him alone, both for the forgiveness of your sins and the leadership of the rest of your life. And I would make the argument that apart from the work of Christ that God predetermined before the creation of the world, apart from that work of Christ and apart from that love, none of us have a right to exist because God is a holy and just judge who must punish sin. So how could God let the sin of the world go unpunished for so long? It's because he knew that he was purchasing those moments, moments of grace. He was purchasing them for us in what he did on the cross. The cross made the offer available, but the cross also secured our standing forever in Christ. We are chosen in him. We are predestined in him. We are blessed and we are given Christ because God loves us in Christ. At the end of verse 6, when he says he's given us this grace in the beloved, that means that he has given us this grace in Christ. He is our greatest treasure. And that's the gospel, is that God loves you in Christ. It's in Christ he expresses his love, and in Christ he keeps you in his love. So if you're not a follower of Jesus, or even if you are a follower, you might think, okay, we're blessed in Christ, but we're not blessed here and now. It's kind of hard to wrap my mind around the spiritual blessings that we have. Or you might be thinking, we're chosen to be holy and blameless, but I know I'm not blameless. I might be blameless in his sight, but what good does that do me if I'm still not blameless in practice? And you might think, okay, well, if I'm predestined, what does that mean until the end when, I, when that destiny is achieved, when I'm completely adopted as his son? Uh, and I'm given a person, right? I'm given this grace in Christ Jesus, um, and that grace is the beloved, uh, but I can't see that person that I'm given right now. So what does all this mean? Well, I believe primarily that God will finish what he started. That's what all this means. God will finish what he started, and he started a work in us, and he will finish it. That's why Paul uses the language of you've been blessed in the heavenlies, you've been blessed past tense in the heavenlies, and that's like future tense. You've been predestined, meaning past tense, God chose future tense where you're going to end up. But God will finish what he started. And we live in between the promise of God and the fulfillment of his promise. 
And so, like we talked about last week, all of us live by faith. And it's best to trust someone who loves you. It's best to trust someone who loves you. And this passage communicates, and it goes on and on, beyond verse 6, communicating all the ways that God loves us in Christ. It's best to trust someone who loves you. We're all going to trust someone or something in our lives. So why not trust the one who loves you the most? And so one major implication of this is that it causes us to redefine love for ourselves. 1 John writes that, or God writes in 1 John, this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us. So redefining love cannot start with us because this is love, not that we loved God, but that God loved us first. And he, and he also says, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And so that's the major implication from this text is love, God should be changing our understanding of what love is. And we're all lovers primarily. God made us to love. And so some applications is first, we need to receive his love. And that, that can be received by understanding that our struggle is primarily spiritual but that we've, given, we've been given in Christ every spiritual blessing. So we can receive his love by relying on him in our daily struggles, in our daily battles, and knowing that victory is found in Christ. So when you turn to Christ, it's not that Christ is going to make your life easy. It's that he is going to show the kindness and the wisdom of God to you. And he's going to show the kindness and the wisdom of God through you to the authorities and the powers that are ultimately the enemy. Another implication is that love is a choice. So when we remember that we're chosen in love, we can actually choose to love because we know what love is, that God loved us first. Another application is when you struggle with knowing what God's will is, you can be grounded in knowing that his kind, intentional, and predetermined inclusion of you into his family, that's his will for your life. It's your identity, who you are. You've been included. God has chosen you to be a part of his family. He's adopted you in Christ. And that can ground you when you're not sure what the next step is. What's God's will? He's included me into his family. He's identified who I am in Christ. And that's enough. And you can keep seeking for more details. I'm not telling you to not do that. But be grounded in what God has revealed himself, uh, revealed about himself, what he has revealed about his will. And another application is trust him. God loves you in Christ, and he's given you Christ. You're one with Christ. You are, right now, we are seated with Christ in the heavenly realms. I can't explain that, but that's what it says, and that's true. And so we can trust him. Because God loves us. Blackaby says that God always takes the initiative in this love relationship. And this passage totally affirms that. I think that Blackaby probably pulled that phrase out of passages like this. Because this passage is all about what God has done for us in Christ. He also says, Blackaby does, that to be loved by God is the highest relationship, achievement, position. It's the highest 
spot in life. It's the highest thing. And I think that's why Paul goes on and on. We didn't get to see it all the way through verse 14 just for the sake of time, but to be loved by God is the highest. And so just can't say enough about how much God loves us in Christ. And Blackaby said in, in experiencing God, I don't choose him. He chooses me. He loves me. And he reveals his eternal purposes for my life. And I would add on, according to Ephesians 1, those purposes are found in Christ. Those purposes, God's purposes for our lives, exist to show off Christ. And you, Christian, are in Christ. So let's pray. God, we want you to talk to us now. Again, remind us how much we are loved by you in Christ. Help us to listen to you and to respond in humble and grateful obedience.